before I get started, I just want to put on record that the record is so awesome. Am I right? Madel can we give Madeline and Tim a round of applause for these? They're so cool. I legit just wanted to wait to say that so we can like have it that part on record. Get it? Because it's called the record? That wasn't actually why. That would be that'd be a joke that I made that a joke just for that reason. So I think you guys are all aware of uh, what we've been covering so far. Um, what we've been covering so far is maybe the most uh, essential thing to know for living the Christian life. Now, don't get me wrong. Knowing Christ and understanding the gospel and recognizing who God is as Trinity, as um, all-powerful judge and worth, uh, person worthy of all worship, all of these things are the most essential parts of the Christian life. But in terms of actually living the Christian life, um, what we've been covering is that most important element of living the Christian life, which is change. Um, and it's so important that we've kind of spent a lot of time um, elaborating on it, maybe more than you would hear in lots of other areas. And the reason is because um, it's so important. Um, and because of that, um, what we've already covered um, has been both the foundations of change and then actually covering the um, practical living out of that change. Um, so the, the foundations of change, you guys uh, know, we started in Second Peter and explained God's motivation um, for the world and for his people, which is that he would receive glory. And in the three sermons after that, we're expanding on that, what it looks like for God's people to be part of God's plan to glorify himself. And that is the highest end of mankind, and that is the greatest thing that any of us could be involved in. But then after that, we actually have to start applying God's plan of change in our life. We don't just sit back and change. Um, God's sovereign plan of change um, gets worked out as we actually care about it, as we put effort into our goal of growing in godliness and holiness, like uh, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. And uh, the way that that ends up working out is really by taking seriously one word in the Bible, which is the word repentance. Um, and we explained repentance um, is being honest and accountable to God for our sin. And then it's recognizing where we need to change um, and being able to put that into practice and have progress in it. And like I said two weeks ago, not in a perfect way, because uh, no one can repent perfectly, but in a sincere way, in a way that says, God, I want to change and I want you to change me. And then actually working out that change, putting off our sinful actions and putting on um, the opposite appropriate uh, godly actions. And that's what we covered last week. Now, what I want to cover today is actually the last um, part of repentance. And I'm also going to tell you this is the most essential part of repentance. After this week, going forward, we're going to start looking at this same spiritual strategy uh, for change called repentance as we actually live ordinary life and as we actually come across uh, the difficulties of life and then the threats against our soul. Um, but now we actually need to cover the last and most essential part of repentance. And the reason it's so important is because really what we've covered about repentance uh, so far is the first half of repentance. Um, confession and sincerity and putting off and putting on, that's really the first part of repentance. You might remember that repentance means um, turning. 
It means turning away from something and turning to something. And everything we've covered, those three so far, has been the first half, turning away from something, turning away from sin. And that means there's this whole other second chunk that makes repentance what it is. Because God is not just calling you to not sin or to turn away from sin. He's not even calling you to just live a righteous life. There's one fundamental thing that God is calling you to do. And that is to turn to him. Repentance is always turning away from sin and then turning to God. And what God is going to explain to us here through Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that's where we're going to be tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, is that you don't just turn to God once, but you turn to him consistently. Uh, turning to God, and specifically as we'll hear, turning to Christ, um, is what being a Christian is all about. This verse has been explained by a lot of pastors as the most important verse about sanctification in the entire Bible. And I would totally agree with that. And that's because in another sense, this verse actually sums up everything it is to be a Christian, not just in terms of repentance, um, but what the Christian finds most joy doing. And that's turning to Christ. So let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and this is going to be our one verse for tonight. This is what Paul says. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The point that Paul is making in a nutshell is that Christians don't come to Christ one time. They continue living by looking at Christ. The Christians look on Christ for salvation because they never want to look anywhere else again. That's because all of our lives are not just lived before God because he's omniscient, but we actively want to go to Christ to see our lives because, as Paul explains, constantly looking at Christ is the greatest tool that you have for transformation. Let me say that again. Looking at Christ constantly, consistently, retroactively has a pattern in your life is the greatest tool of transformation that you have. All I want to do today is spend time in this verse and break down just in three simple ways what Paul is explaining. Because what he's explaining is that looking at Christ is the ultimate key for change in your life. That's our literal one point today. I just want to break that down in three steps um, in terms of how Paul is explaining this as the last essential step of a spiritual strategy for you uh, to change, to grow in godliness, grow in holiness, and to grow in a deeper and more profound understanding of what life for a Christian is all about. So let's get into it. The first step he explains in terms of looking at Christ as the ultimate key for your life is that in looking at Christ, you behold the glory of God. You behold the glory of God. Now, honestly, this should sound really familiar because this is actually how we began this series on change in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 4, that God's glory is our motivation for everything. 
And we change because God deserves glory and that's what he created me for. Every single believer in this world was created in order that they would find their greatest joy in glorifying God. But what Paul explains here is that you won't be able to glorify God if you don't constantly look at him and be reminded of his glory. Because when we constantly behold God's glory, which means to look at it, to see it, to understand it, to comprehend it, we become more and more in love with God. We become more in love with his glorious plan for the world. Now, in order to kind of work up to this, let me explain something um, that I thought as a teenager when I was your age. I used to think that Old Testament people must have had a way easier time believing in God and therefore worshiping God. And I thought that for sure because they got to see so many supernatural signs, right? And miracles and just God doing incredible things. And if I saw that, I thought I would definitely believe God and I would have an easier time, you know, following him because my mind just would have been blown. But honestly, what I found out when I got older and started reading more of the Bible is that the Bible explains it's actually exactly the opposite. The Old Testament is um, the story of how God is revealing himself to all creation through his people, Israel. And the more you read about Israel, the more mind-blown you are at how they could see so much of God's supernatural wonders and his miracles and yet never change, and yet never worship God. Actually, not worship him and sin against him constantly. And what Paul is actually explaining is the same thing. He's explaining the opposite of what I thought as a teenager, that when believers see and experience God's glory, what he's not talking about is God doing wonderful things the way we think of wonderful things, not pillars of fire in the sky or amazing wonders like the plagues in Egypt or Christ walking on water. That's not exactly what he means when he says you need to see God's glory. He's talking about something else. What he says is that we need to behold the glory of the Lord with an unveiled face. So what's he talking about when he says an unveiled face? Well, what ultimately he's trying to say, what he's trying to work towards is that when God's people see his glory, then something changes. And what he actually explains in this story that he's telling in 2 Corinthians 3 is that we had an example of that in Moses. Moses saw God and he literally changed. Now, the story he's referring to, he kind of begins in verse 7 to 11, um, just a couple of verses up from where we are. But that little chunk is actually a reference way back to Exodus chapter 34. And in Exodus chapter 34, um, it explains that Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai. Israel is camped under this mountain, and Moses has been up there for a whole bunch of chapters, and he's been talking with God. And what it says in Exodus 34, 29, is that when Moses came down after he had been talking from God, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now, what he's talking about is a kind of literal phenomenon, that he talked to God and his face was actually bright, like it actually shone like a really bright light bulb. And it says two verses later that the people of Israel saw the face of Moses and they saw that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And then they add this, 
Moses would put a veil on his face until he went in to speak with God. Raise your hand if you've been to a wedding before. Um, Keep your hand raised if the bride came down the aisle wearing a veil. So most of you. So this is incredibly common uh, at weddings. When the bride comes down the aisle, they have a veil, and they're kind of like hiding their face, and it kind of builds anticipation. And then when they open the veil, the groom who's waiting and all the rest of the guests have this little moment of profundity, like, wow, this is real. And if you're the spouse, and I've been a spouse, and am a spouse, and I remember that moment at my wedding, um, and it's, it's this tiny little, like, oh, it's, it's exciting, and something changes in you. Um, because this moment that you've been waiting for that's just the most exciting, maybe, moment you've, you've ever had is suddenly there. And there's this tiny little piece of something that he's getting at. Moses is saying, you cannot see God's glory and leave unchanged, just like Moses. But there's a limitation here. So even though the concept is true, there's something specific that happened with Moses, something that Paul wants to explain, we have something even better than Moses. Because here's the thing, only Moses got to talk with God, only Moses And he changed all right. He came down with a shining, bright face, but he changed on the outside. And he's really getting at something that ends up being the rest of the Old Testament, which is that seeing God do amazing things doesn't change in you. It's having a relationship with God, seeing the depth of his glory, looking away from yourself and looking to Christ. That is what changes you. Having a deep understanding of that. And you know what? Israel didn't have that because they didn't want that. They saw all of these signs of God's power and his glory, but they didn't want God. They didn't want a relationship with God. And so they constantly turned away from God. And when he demonstrated his glory, it says they were terrified on so many occasions because they didn't want God. They wanted their sin. And so every time they looked at God, they had a veil on their face, which means they didn't really see God's glory because they weren't looking at God. What Paul is explaining here is that not just Moses, but we all, every single Christian gets to behold God's glory like Moses did. And they get to see it with an unveiled face. Every believer gets to have a relationship with God in which they can see his glory And they get to see it in an even more amazing way than even Moses had, which is this. They get to see Jesus Christ. It's seeing God's glory through Jesus Christ that changes everything. You see, what God is really trying to explain is that Jesus came to change something about his people, which is that they would recognize that inside of them is what needs to change and not outside of them. This is something Israel never understood. They were given God's law, right? God's rules, his plan for them to live, their plan to represent God on the earth. But they made all of that something about the outside, something that they had to do, a kind of pattern they needed to keep up so that they could ultimately do whatever they wanted to do. And that's the exact 
opposite of why God gave the law to his people. What the law did was explain God's righteousness, his holiness, what it means to be right with God. It was goodness. Even 1 Timothy explains that the law of God is good. The problem is that the law of God reveals that we are bad. Because when we can't keep the law, it shows that we don't love goodness. Because the law is good. And Israel, totally not understanding that concept, really proves something that Paul mentions here in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7, just a couple verses up, which is that this living only by the law is a ministry of death. Now Paul says, don't get me wrong, living by the law is a good thing. I don't want anyone to disregard the law of God. But here's the thing, if all you want from God is his law, you're doomed. You're heading towards death because you're heading down a path in which you want to please God by your own works. And that never ends well. So he explains, I'm going to demonstrate my glory on a deeper, more profound level that is so radical that it's not going to change just your outward actions. It's going to change your heart because no one comes to God and doesn't become changed. And so what he did is show his glory through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ walked among his people. He came, God himself, in flesh, and he walked literal streets that you could go today. And he ministered and taught to his people when what he explains is that he was demonstrating in the greatest way that history has ever known God's glory. When the Jewish people were trying to lead all of Israel by law alone, for the purpose of glorifying themselves, Jesus came in the middle of that ministry of death and he said to his people in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. When you look at me, you are looking at God. I am among you. I can see you, I can touch you, I can hug you, I can show you something greater than any part of history has ever been able to see. That's why Paul himself, actually a couple of verses later, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, says that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God has shone in our hearts. Do you get that? It's not our faces shining, it's our hearts that are shining. Why? Paul says, because we've seen the face of Christ. Do you want to change? Here's the first question to ask yourself. If it is difficult for me to change, when's the last time I looked at Christ? Because in Christ, you see a glory that doesn't leave you unchanged. Looking at Christ gives you not just a reminder, not just a comprehension of a bunch of facts we're supposed to know. It radically, noticeably, recognizably changes everything about you. When you truly come to Jesus and say, teach me, you change. Now the question is, how do we see God's glory in Christ? What does that mean? When I look at Christ, what am I going to see? Honestly, a million things. That's like the whole New Testament. Let me really quickly give you four things you will see when you look at Christ. Number one, you will see the perfect, glorious plan of God in Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. 
God has been demonstrating through his prophets and apostles God's glory. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. Christ was there when the world was being built. He was not absent. And when he came and walked among us, showing the glory of God, showing that he was God, he was showing that the point of all existence and the pinnacle of all creation was to get to that moment. All of creation was working towards Christ, and all of our existence afterwards is lived in light of Christ. That was God's plan from the beginning. Another thing you see, the second thing, is the perfect and glorious power of Christ. Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God. How on earth would millions of people through all of history come and get together and listen to one guy talk for sometimes hours? Why on earth would we do that? That sounds like the most boring thing ever. Well, guess what? When you listen to a boring person talk about the most glorious person in existence, people leave changed. That's the power of the gospel. No other talking, no other oration, no other poetry, no other story changes all of people's existence so profoundly that when they die, they'll rise again one day. That's the power of the gospel because the gospel is all about Christ. A third thing that you see is the perfect and glorious example in Christ. No human being ever lived the way a human was supposed to until Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 22, Peter says that Christ committed no sin. And the author of Hebrews adds to that. He says he didn't commit sin and he was tempted. His whole life was full of moments where he could have said, just sin once. And he absolutely refused, just the way God had always intended his people to live since the garden. And because they failed in that, at every moment in time, Christ himself came, not just to die for us, but to live for us that their perfect life would be given for our righteousness before a holy God as unrighteous people, and so we would see how humanity is supposed to live. The final thing you think, and this is something I think we have to constantly look at, is that in Christ you see the perfect and glorious love of God. Plan, power, example, and love. God is love, and Christ is God. Finish the equation. Christ is love. Only through Christ have we seen the greatest, most amazing demonstration of love in existence. If your bar for love is anything lower than Christ, then it is way too low. And when you see Christ, the bar for how loving love could possibly be gets raised up past the clouds into the heavens. It is the greatest love that could constantly ever be understood and Christ owns it here's the other explanation here's the other thing we kind of need to ask very quickly is that we're still left with the fact that people in Israel in the Old Testament they got to see God they got to see his wonders so what is it about seeing Christ that demonstrates so much greater glory than anyone in the Old Testament ever had here's what it is this plan, this power, this example, this love that you get to see in Christ, all of that gets to radically change you from just hearing about Christ. 
from just the power of the gospel changing your life, even though you haven't physically seen him. This is what faith is, guys. Faith is not a comprehension of the facts. Faith is spiritually seeing Christ. And as you constantly look at Christ with the spiritual eyes that he's given you, you change. This is what Peter gets at in 1 Peter chapter 1.8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. How could you love someone you've never seen? Because that person years ago ordained that as he died on the cross, my eyes would be open 2,000 years later. And that spiritually, I would be able to understand that for some reason, God would come to take on human flesh and die for me. That's faith. And it is so powerful that you never want to take your eyes off of him. That's how Peter continues. He says, though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and it's filled with glory. Looking at what Christ has done is such a glorious experience that you never want to look away. Even though you've never seen him, he loves you and you love him, which means he's changed you. And that faith is something that's supposed to not just be this one-time thing, this one thing that we figure out so we can get baptized and be part of a member of a church and then feel okay about ourselves. This is something that we put into practice and put into our patterns every single day. And actually, that's the whole second step that Paul gets into. The first step to understanding faith as the last step of repentance is to behold God's glory in Christ. Here's the second to be transformed into the same image as Christ. Paul lays out his method very simply. He says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed. And it seems really weird if you just think about it for like 30 seconds. Okay, so I'm supposed to look at Christ and then be transformed? That's a whole passive thing. I thought I'm supposed to go and change myself. I thought that's what this whole series is about. Well, it definitely is, but it's saying ultimately the reason you change is because God is sovereignly changing you. And I think that's the problem for so many Christians is they understand this idea of God's sovereignty and then they're like, well, what do I even do? Like, do I do anything? God is sovereign, do I not do anything? Well, God says his sovereign plan of change is that you would constantly choose to what? Do good things, live a good life, yes, but one thing most primarily, that you'd look at him that you would enjoy constantly understanding who he is and what he's done and how you're included in that. That's why he says, beholding. We're called to look at God constantly. Think back to your grammar classes, as sad and frustrating as that might be. I-N-G, what does that mean? It means you do something a lot, right? Continuous action. You're not supposed to behold just the glory of God. You're supposed to be beholding constantly, always, not just because you want to, because you choose to, because again, this is the greatest tool for transformation you have. I never want to stop staring at God. And the reason Christ came is so that you could do that. That's why some people have said that 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 could be labeled as sanctification through staring. 
seems like the most boring thing you could possibly do, but it ends up being the most amazing thing you could do because as a result of that, Paul says, we are being transformed. I don't say a lot of Greek words, but every once in a while when I do, it's because I think when I say it, you'll understand what it is. The Greek word for transformation is metamorphe, right? Metamorphosis, that's where we get that word. It's the idea of a radical change, something totally different. This is caterpillar to cocoon to butterfly. That is the change of a Christian life. Not just when they behold God the first time, when they're raised from deadness into spiritual life, but as they constantly look at Christ, they put on more strength, more righteousness, more God-fearing, more patience, kindness, goodness, all of these things than they ever thought they could way back when they were a baby Christian. And it's so dramatic that the kind of change that this brings to you is that you don't just become a better person, you start looking like Christ. Can you imagine that? That you could be considered Christ-like. You who, knew, who knows everything that's going on here, everything that God wouldn't be a big fan of, that God would not just save you, but transform you so radically that people would start to see Christ in you as you look at Christ. Now, ultimately, this is really getting at something that the Old Testament also talks a lot, which is this big theme throughout the whole Bible, which is that you become what you worship. Whatever you look at changes you. A really, really good place to see this is Psalm 115, verse 8. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, um, you'll see how radical this is. This is what um, the psalmist leads up to in Psalm 115, verse 8. He says, The nation's idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. So everyone in the world is building idols. And he says, Those idols, they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have e uh, uh, ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see. And they have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. They have feet, but they don't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. People built useless idols. And what happened? They became useless. They're dead like their idols. They have no life like their idols. And then he says in verse 8, because those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. You guys remember that story in the Old Testament uh, about when Israel built the golden calf? Do you guys remember that story? They rejected God and they made this big cow. And for some reason they thought this big gold cow would be better than God. Again, it shows that sin makes you stupid. But probably thinking of that way, way later in Amos chapter 4 verse 1, Amos accuses the people of this, being stiff-necked and being cows. Do you get the point? People built idols like cows and they become cows. You become what you worship. So think to yourself, what do you look at? I don't just mean physically, though that's included. What do you look at with love? What do you look at that makes you most excited? What do you look at that you find most pleasure in? What do you think about? Because if it's not Christ, 
It's going to corrode you. It's going to dissolve you, and you're going to become like it. What do you look at? You will become like it. Because as you worship it, you are giving more and more of yourself to that idol. That idol owns you more and more. And if you think that that's a big deal, the question I hope you have is, how do I get free from that? Because the problem is, I'm driven by my desires. So how do I get free from my own desires? Here's the thing. You go to God so that God can give you new desires. You look at him. And you see that he's more valuable and worth more than any of your idols. And here's the amazing thing. As you look at Christ, your idols become less and less valuable to you. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he explains that he's excited about the transformation he's seen in them. And he describes it in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 this way. They turned from their idols to serve God and to wait for Christ. You know what happens when you are looking at something and you turn away from it? You're not looking at it anymore, right? And God is saying, as you turn from your idols, even in tiny ways, and you start looking at Christ, the glory that you see makes everything else look so much less worthy of glory, which is why this needs to be such a serious pattern in your life. Because you can only look at one thing at a time. But when you make it a priority in your life to make that thing Jesus Christ, you'll see how it radically reshapes your life. There's a book that I think all of you should read. It's a small book. It's called The Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. If you ever want a copy, just come, and I will ship one to your house. It's a small book, and it just explains the gospel in three simple ways. And the first chapter explains the gospel and why Christians... Keep in mind, Christians need to remember the gospel every day. He gives at least, I think, 35 reasons. And one of them is you need to behold the glory of Christ so you can be transformed. And this is what he says. The glory of God is the most powerful agent of transformation available to mankind. What we've been talking about. And it's so powerful that it transformed people merely gazing upon it. And from Paul's testimony, I learned that if I wish to become all that God wants me to be, I must behold his glory each day. That's what we're getting at, the I-N-G, beholding. That this is a pattern of your life will demonstrate change. Now here's the big question. What's going to change? What specifically? Well, again, keep in mind the ultimate principle here, right? You become like what you worship, which means if you look at Christ, you will become like Christ. Again, let me quickly give you four examples of what exactly that means. There's so many examples, and I wish I could just spend a ton of time here, but we have limited time. Let me give you four very quick ways that you become like Christ. Number one, when you look at Christ, you become light like he is light. Christ said in John chapter 12, 38, believe in the light so you may become sons of the light. If you are stuck in sin, it's because you're stuck in darkness. That's where mold and things we don't like, like rats and cockroaches, those are things that like darkness, which means fundamentally everyone understands that the darkness is awful. Do you want to stay there? 
Do you want to still suffer under the weight of your own sin and the burden of falling into every temptation that comes to you? Or do you want to come to the light and you want to be changed and cleansed and freed with the freedom that only comes from Jesus Christ? Then look at him and become light him. And become everything that he tells us about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, my people need to be salt and what? Light, right? A city on a hill. If you want to have maximum impact, not just of your own change, but maximum impact in other people's lives, then keep looking at the light. And Christ has promised that he becomes a light for your path. Or the way that Psalm 36, 9 says, in God's light, we see light. And you could add to that, we become light. Here's the second one. When we look at Christ, we can love as Christ loved. John 13, 1. Christ loved them to the end. There wasn't a moment of Jesus Christ's life when he didn't love his disciples so desperately that he didn't hesitate dying on a cross for their sins. And that includes you if you're a Christian. That you know that the most radical element of Christ that changed you is that, as Romans 5, 8 says, even though we were sinners, Jesus Christ demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our ugliest, when no one in this world would ever love us if they knew what was going on in our hearts. That's when Christ died for us. That's love. And nothing compares to that love. And this is the amazing thing. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 and 19 says this, that love gets perfected in us. How? Because when he first loved us, we love. When you look at the love of Christ and you understand it, it changes you and you become loving. John Owen said this, the glory of Christ captures our affections and it causes us to love what Christ loves. I hope you want that. And I hope you want that because here's the given. We're not loving people. Some of us have a problem with love. I think some of you would be really honest and admit you have a problem loving some people, let alone anybody. Do you think that's just a part of your permanent personality? Do you think, I'm just never gonna love anyone. That's just how God built me. That's not true. God not only commands you to love, but he causes you to be loving because no one comes to God and sees his glory and his love and doesn't become loving as a result. Every believer struggles with love. If you want to stop struggling with it, look to Christ. He promises he'll change you. Here's the third thing. When you look at Christ, you will serve as Christ served. In John chapter 13, 5, when Jesus was having the last supper with his disciples, Jesus, the God of the universe in human flesh, washes the dirty feet of his disciples. Maybe the most radical demonstration of the humility of Christ in the whole Bible. And when Paul looked at that love and saw his love in comparison that was so deficient and his service that was so much tinier, infinitely tinier than Christ, and yet he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to tell people 
who were seemingly outside the plan of God, that they could know God and they could be changed. He tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.2, we're servants for you, for Jesus' sake. I'll spend my life and be spent, he says, in another place, for your sake. What on earth could cause someone to die to themselves and serve in that way? It's not because they're particularly gifted. Paul would be the first to say that. It's because he looked at Christ a lot. It's because he constantly went back to Christ. Not just the personal ministry he was given, but just the fact that Christ died for him. Just like he died for you if you place your faith in him. That radically made him say, my life is not about me. It's about anyone else. That anyone else could know Christ. Do you want to radically die to yourself? Do you want to have service as the top priority in your life the way God calls you to be? Then stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your deficiency and your weakness in this area. Just look at Christ and his service. It won't just change your mentality, it'll change your desires. And that'll change your will. And you'll become servant. Fourth one, when we look at Christ... We endure as Christ endured. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame because of the joy that was set before him. Christ knew the end of the story. He knew that sin would only be a presence in this world for the tiniest speck of existence. And one day he would come again and finish it all and raise all his people to life again to be with God for eternity. That joy was so amazing that he didn't waste any time going to the cross. When that time came, he went to it unhesitatingly. And no matter how much pain he had to endure, no matter how much weakness he had to fight in his humanity, in his flesh, he endured all of it you feel a motivation to love and serve God, but you admit that there's moments that it's just way too hard. There's just too many moments I give in. There's just too many things that are too brutal. There's just too many moments of suffering that if you got me, if you actually understood my life, you would know no one could be righteous in this situation. Not true. And it's not because I understand you. I, I don't. But Christ does. And when he unites himself with a person, they can endure whatever God sovereignly puts in their path. No scheme of the devil, no sin, no temptation, no weakness will force you to crumble when you're making, looking at Christ a pattern in your life. The more you look at Christ, the strength you have is so profound that you can endure like Christ endured. Now, since we're getting close to our time here, let me quickly move to the third point and just solidify the last aspect of this process. The reason that Christ is the ultimate key of change in your life is that you behold God in Christ, you're transformed in the same image of Christ, and that you continue to walk in Christ, the third key, because of the Spirit. You continue to walk by the Spirit. I think all of you guys in this room know Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, right? 
Love, joy, peace, patient, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's all true. When you live by the power of the Spirit, you do what God calls you to do. Here's the thing. I think the problem with so many believers is they think the Spirit's main job is to make you do stuff, right? The Spirit comes into me and he changes me, so I do stuff. So I do righteous things. So I live a good and better life than I did before, right? Here's the thing. That's not the main job of the Spirit. That is a job of the Spirit. That is one thing the Spirit does, but that's not the most important thing the Spirit does for you. This is the most important thing the Spirit does in your life. It points you to Christ. He points you to Christ. The Holy Spirit in the Bible is called the Spirit of Christ because the Holy Spirit is inseparable from Christ. As Trinity, God is always full in himself. And yet, it is the job of the Spirit to come to you and not say, hey, it's me. It's to say, look at Christ. Don't stop looking at Christ. That's why I'm called the Spirit of Christ. Because it's the Spirit's job to remind us about Christ and to move us to keep looking at Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 26... It says that the Holy Spirit comes to us to bring to us the remembrance of Christ's words. In John 16, 13, it says that the Spirit guides us in the truth of Christ and only speaks whatever Christ says he speaks. And if you really want to get crazy with the evidences, you just need to read Romans chapter 8. Because Romans chapter 8 is full of the Spirit's job. In verse 10, it says he brings life and righteousness to us because he brings Christ. In verse 12, it says he frees us from our flesh because he makes us debtors to Christ. In verse 16, it says he reminds us that we're heirs because we're heirs with Christ. Verse 24, he says he brings expectation for God's culmination of his work because Christ will be returning. And in verse 28, he says he even brings our prayers to Christ. Paul sums it up really well in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, when he says, no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the spirit. If you have ever looked at Christ, it's because the spirit pointed you to Christ. And this is his emphasis here. He's trying to tell you, if you're saved, you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, you have the ability to make this the greatest pattern of your life. That even though Christ is not literally before you, he is spiritually before you and available to you always. So don't waste time looking at other things when the Spirit has called you to greater, higher, more life-transforming things. Like looking at Christ. One thing that was really cool when I studied this is I never thought about it, but, you know, Paul never actually saw Christ literally. Because when we think of that moment in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road, we're like, yeah, he saw Christ. It says Christ was there. But what's the first thing that happened when Christ appeared to him? He got struck blind. He couldn't see Christ because he couldn't see anything. He heard the words of Christ. That's not different from what we have. Now, he may have heard them in a incredibly more dramatic way but even the point of acts chapter 9 is to make a point there 
Because when he goes and does what Christ tells him to do, he goes to this guy named Ananias who's going to tell him the next thing he's going to do. This is what Ananias tells Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 17. He says, The Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road by which you came, and he sent me so that you may regain your sight, and what? You'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. That was the point. Paul could have this dramatic moment that he had no idea what it meant, but this is what it meant. You're going to serve Christ, and you're going to want to, because the Holy Spirit is going to point you to Christ, spiritually speaking. This is the only way that it's possible, and since it is possible, it needs to be established in our lives. And here's the reason why it's not. Here's the reason it's not. Because we look at ourselves so darn much. We scrutinize all of our sin. We get obsessed with our future circumstances. And we just think just the name Christ in our identity as Christians is enough. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read the word. I'm going to do better. It's going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. It's not. I'm telling you, it's not. As someone who, like many of you, grew up in the church, none of that is going to help. But doing maybe the most boring thing you could possibly imagine. Looking at Christ just one more time. And trying to understand him just one more time. And then that one time just changes everything. Because you realize it's the first time in your life you stopped looking at yourself. And started looking at Christ. For real. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, says it really well. We are constantly turning in on ourselves. We looking at ourselves, and we are being concerned about ourselves. And it is just here that the spirit of love comes in, for there's only one way to get rid of yourself. And that is that you have to become absorbed in something or someone else so that you have no time to think about yourself. And as you become absorbed in the love of God, you'll forget about yourself. We too often believe that the assurance of our salvation is our works, and it's not. The assurance of your salvation is looking at Christ and not just factually knowing who he is, but desiring more deeply to know who he is. If you are someone who says, I'm an absolute mess, my life is a mess, I fail in so many ways, but you know what? The one thing I want more than anything is to see Christ. And I want him to return so he can permanently fix the mess that is my life. Join the club. That is where change starts happening. Let me end uh, with just a really quick illustration. I watched this movie this week. It was called Moneyball. Anyone ever heard of that movie before? Moneyball? Yeah. A lot of people haven't seen it because it's a boring baseball movie where a lot of people talk. And I thought the same. And then I watched the movie. It's pretty good. It's about baseball. And if you're like me and you don't like baseball, it's totally fine. It's about a team called the Oakland A's, and when the movie begins, they're the trash team of the league. They're the worst team. Um, and they have no money to be able to make their team better. They have no resources. All they have is the same management they've ever had before. And they have the same strategy to try and make themselves better, which is that the little money we have, we're just going to try and replace all of the good players that we had. But they start talking to a guy, and he said this, here's the key to your problems. It's the key to all of the problems. It's math. Math is going to save us. 
Now this guy ended up getting ignored because he adopted a strategy from another guy that said, don't use the regular strategies of trying to make the best baseball team you can. All you have to do is look at these statistics. And yes, you might have some less exciting players doing some less exciting things, but you know what? If you look at this math that's revealing a different kind of team just in these numbers, I guarantee you'll have the best team in the league. You know what happened? The manager of the Oakland A's took that guy seriously. Even though all of his management said, we know what's up, we have the more exciting, more popular, more valuable strategy that's worked for so long, don't listen to math guy. But he ignored him. He took the boring, different strategy. And the Oakland A's ended up going on to win more games consecutively than any team in history, and it ended up radically changing baseball forever. Here's the point. Part of the reason change is so hard for us is because we look at the world for its strategies, because they're popular, they're valuable, and people seem to be so much happier than certain Christians we know. This might be the most boring, monotonous strategy that you've heard a million times. Here's the thing. It's the only real strategy that's actually going to work. It's the only strategy that's actually going to bring change that will change everything about you. Everything. Not just how you live, but why you live in a different way. Because in Christ, you get to comprehend the glory of God. And even if that strategy sounds too simple to work, God is promising it is ultimately the only thing that can work. So stop wasting time. Understand that the greatest way that you could possibly change is simply looking at Christ. After this week, we're basically going to be starting to look at how that ends up changing life when life gets hard and difficult and unexpected and surprising. But if you don't forget this, I promise nothing that we cover is going to be too difficult as you try to implement change in your actual life. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us energy and attentiveness for just so much talking about things that I think so many of us have heard so many times. Um, we, we know this stuff. A lot of this isn't new, and it doesn't feel radical or exciting, but, uh, Father, it is. You know that it is. This is the difference between eternal spiritual death and eternal life with you. All we have to do is look at your Son. And we know that you've promised that that glory would draw us in so deeply that we would never be let go of it, and we would never want to be let go of it. But Father, it is so difficult because there seems to be so many bright things in this world and in this culture. Father, at the press of a button on our phones or with one touch of our screen, we can see so many things that seem so much greater than you. Father, we need you to remind us that they're not there is no sin that brings lasting joy like you do and that you will establish on this whole earth one day. So, Father, take our eyes off of our idols that we would see your glory for what it is. Father, we know that you will do this, so please change the hearts of these students. Please help them to comprehend
that something so simple could actually be so life-transforming if we simply believed in you. And we can't do that without you and the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, please work mightily in this room that we would be able to comprehend your glory through your Son. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Um, so I'm sure you guys will have questions and different things to discuss. I just want to give you one very quick suggestion for uh, your small groups tonight. If you feel like you don't have a plan, if you feel like you've heard this and it's too simple, if you feel like you don't have any questions, honestly, I just want you to spend the time just practicing this. Uh, and what I mean is if you spend all of your small group time, if you want, by literally just finding passages in the Bible about Christ and just reading him, you will have used small group very, very well. If you decide to do that. Um, if you want to, I just want to give you a whole bunch of verses that you could read. I'm, I did it in whole chapters, so you can read more at a time. Um, again, you could use small group any way you want, but this would be a really good way to spend it if you want to spend it this way. Uh, John chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, Isaiah chapter 42, 43, and 53 are all amazing. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Philippians uh, chapter 2, and that would mainly be verses 1 to 11. Um, and then also Philippians chapter 3. Um, so if you want to spend your time just literally just reading about Christ um, so that you can look at him, so you can comprehend him, um, that would be a good use of your time. And you're welcome to go back through a whole bunch of things, but I just wanted to give you one path to be able to do that. So uh, thank you guys. You guys can break off, and then we'll come back at 10. Um, and then no one is assigned for a takedown today because there's the men's meeting tomorrow. Um, so you guys can use up uh, all the time. Thanks, guys.